hear the Spirit saying, come unto me, all you, every single one of you who are weary and heavy with burdens. For my yoke is easy. My weight is light. Oh, it is a gift. It is a gift. It is a gift for us. Not without cost. But it is a gift. Thank you, guys. That was so beautiful. So beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Setting up the atmosphere. It's good. It's good in here. Yeah. Thank you. You can give them a warm hand clap as they go. So pretty. Hmm. Oh, we're in a good place. We're in a good place today. We're in a good space. A good place to be. Yeah, yeah. A good uh, ministry, a good house, a good group, good feeling, good things, beautiful things have happened in the space. Um, Yeah, it's real good. You ready to hear what the Spirit is saying to this church today? You ready to hear, ready to receive, ready to um, open up your heart? Open up the, uh, the heart is the, the organ. Well, sure, it is the organ there. But all the occurrences in our scripture that talk about the heart, it really means the seat of your motivation, the seat of your ambition. And that's really not talking about this that pumps in here, um, but it's talking about the seat of your value, your, your motive, your motivation. Um, we are, uh, I'm glad to be back. I guess I should say that. And, and thank you to Pastor Marsha for ministering last week. Um, what, so say more about stay close. Cause I didn't get to hear the message. I didn't get to listen to it. I don't even know if it got posted, but I, I don't know. Maybe we didn't. But stay close. I know that she has beautiful stories, and it was a a beautiful ministry last week. Um, My wife and I were out of town celebrating our uh, seven-year wedding anniversary. Seven years. And uh, eight eight years together and seven years married. Can you believe that? Yeah. We had some, some in that, it seems like, can you believe that, right? I know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, um, and eight years together, strangely, uh, as we were driving, we go to Bentonville for our, our anniversary, because that's, I'm going to tell it, should I not? I always tell these stories I'm not supposed to tell, you guys want to hear it, right? You want to hear my stories, uh, but I, so she's driving to Bentonville. We love to go there. We got a VRBO and um, just hung out. It had a hot tub. It was fun. Um, and anyway, we <laughs> she's waiting to hear what I'm going to say. Uh, um, 
she, see, she says, out of, we were driving in silence, and she said, that is the seventh skunk, seventh dead skunk that I've counted on this drive. I said, seven, seven dead skunks. She says, yeah, I've been counting these skunks as we've been driving over, and there's been seven of them. And I said, weird, because we're celebrating seven years. <laughs> and I say, bye-bye, seven skunky years. Let's go on up and get something real good, because after seven years of marriage, um, and I know many of you in this house have been married much longer than that, but you know seven is important. So, it's an adjusting period, especially later in life when you marry later in life. <laughs> when you marry, where, when we did, it was like, whoa, that's how you do that, huh? Okay, that's not how we do that ever before. That's how we're going to do that now. <laughs> I want to offer an, a ramp onto this message. I want to offer you any way that you can get into this space with me. Um, I do want to read a traditional text um, that is is read at the beginning of a Lent season. So we are in Lent. Um, if you uh, adhere to that calendar, the church year. And I think it's an opportunity to get real, to get connected, to pay more attention to your spiritual discipline, to your life. And typically at the beginning of a Lenten season, it lasts for about 40 days, right? I mean, exactly 40 days. And then it ends, <laughs> give or take, 40 is kind of a big deal in the Bible. <laughs> they, they like 40s, 40 days, 40 nights. It's a thing. Um, and so we took that literally, as it turns out, and we made it actually 40 days. <laughs> I'm cracking myself up, all my Bible people in here. <laughs> um, the church just likes to do that. Anyway, so I want an entree into, into this message. I'm going to be reading out of Matthew 4, if you brought your Bible with you. If you brought your Bible, you get a prize. Uh, if you brought your Bible on your phone, do you raise your phone? Yes, that's fine with me. Um, so we've been talking about joining the conversation that the divine is already having on your behalf. Um, we get this idea from a beautiful writer and imagination, C.S. Lewis, talking about the conversation that's already happening. And I love this because the invitation goes both ways. Um, the church for many years has, has, have thought that we needed to invite Jesus into our heart <laughs> to join our life. But the reality is, is that the divine has already had you in the incubation, the womb of the divine's mind and the divine's heart, and you're already there. And really the invitation is for you <laughs> to enjoy and to join in on what's already been planned and established for you um, before time ever began. So thank you for coming. It's really been fun. You guys have a good day. Okay, um, <laughs> so reading out of Matthew 4 and starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted, how many? Forty days and forty nights. That just means a long time. Afterward, he was hangry. Jesus was hangry. Now, when the tempter came to him, the tempter, come on, 
when the tempter came to him, he said, what? If you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Verse 5, then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and attended or ministered unto him. We read this because the church has decided that these 40 days we need to mirror that. And in a sense, go into a place of wilderness or a place of desolation. Um, I don't adhere to all of that as a personal practice. I love what some have said um, when asked, what are you giving up for Lent? And the response is, I'm giving up my inner critic for Lent. <laughs> or I'm giving up my self-condemnation for Lent. Because we do a whole lot of taking um, a beating from our own selves um, on a daily basis, um, comparison and otherwise. And so it's just interesting for me to come up to that concept of, you know what, I'm going to lay off of myself for Lent, and I'm going to say what God says about me, and God's opinion about me is going to be my pervasive thought throughout the Lenten season. So when I'm ready um, on Good Friday, into the tomb, all of that can go, and up from the grave, I can rise like the peace blessing was talking about this morning so beautifully. Brian Zand recently, I love Brian Zand. He writes some beautiful books about um, her gates will never be shut and some other things. He's a progressive um, theologian, pastor, I believe. Maybe he's not pastoring anymore. But he stated that the Satan is more than a metaphor, but less than a person. I'm not totally satisfied with that definition. Um, I think one of the greatest tricks of the Satan is to convince entire populations that he doesn't exist. Um, the key, I have another friend that um, studies some things around time and imagery and colors and um, 
how Genesis 1, the account of creation in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, how they relate all the way to the very end of the book at Revelation 13, and how understanding the times and the seasons, the eras in which we live, and the subjects or the players on that landscape are so important for our understanding in our own personal life mentally. Um, there is an ancient serpent, okay, um, who is not dressed in red. So that's not what I'm promoting here today. But there is a, a, a voice, an, a, an accuser, uh, as, as the scripture said, of the brethren, a, an accuser of humanity. Um, that accuser lurks, <laughs> as it turns out, and hides and speaks to us through our own timekeeping awareness. Now, I'm kind of going to get deeper into this because you can handle this and yes. And so I, I'm not going to go into to, to some of these, these particulars, but the interesting subject for me in the scripture that we just read is the Satan, the tempter, the accuser. Um, Jesus representing all of us in this text, tempted with worldly gain. Tempted with what? Power. Tempted with power. Tempted through the stomach. Tempted through the things we need, the, the vacuum, the places that we need to fill, and how we're going to get those needs met. Tempted by the very things that every single one of us need. All right? And it's, it's interesting to me that the Satan deals with the text. And it is also curious to me that the divine deals in that text because the tempter started in the text. I told my wife this week, I speak Bible. I'm bilingual. I can speak Bible and I can speak spirit. Okay? When I'm with people that know the Bible and need to be convinced of their belovedness in the text, I speak text. To someone who doesn't know anything about the text, I speak spirit. Because spirit deep calls to deep. You can get some things without knowing how it stacks up in the argument. Sometimes spiritual things are more caught than taught. Like you can, a baby doesn't need to know the language, they feel the love. And so in some instances, you don't have to play text for text. But I've been in the council room this week. I have been in my office at a board meeting. I have been with people who know the scripture. And it's important that for me and my job, I understand how to get there. How to get there in the argument. If you say, uh, well, what about this text that says those people are going to hell? Oh, what about that? Okay. Then we get to offer up these other texts. That's why I've given my, well, it's just what I was born into. It's the narrative in which I was raised and what I was born, and so I get it, and I know it. It's interesting to me that this accuser 
uses the text to accuse. And I think that's just for somebody in here, for you to think about that, to think about that in your own interpersonal relationships, as well as how you think about other people. There was an overthrow of God's voice. Some would say around 12,000 years ago, you, it, we don't have to really debate over times necessarily, unless you know those kinds of things and eras. And There is an overthrow of God's voice in humanity's anthropological development. And there is an overthrow or a taking back in the God-Jesus character. There is a demonstration of taking that authority back. That authority that was given to humankind right in the middle of Genesis 1. If you know those creation stories, you know that humanity was given dominion. And, and, and seriously, I know that a lot of my, my more liberal friends will go, well, we're not the only thing that matters in creation. No, 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 no. No, certainly not. The greatest among is the servant of all. See, we've, we fail on that because we think that we have to have a competitive, um, conquesting um, uh, power, power over. And if we have dominion, then that must make us uh, elite or um, somehow more special than any of the other creation or more special than the earth. No, it's to then serve and steward, right? The greatest among you is a servant of all. That's the reason we got the job is because we're made in the image and the likeness of the divine. And so it was to steward the earth and take care of it and, and to um, work with it in love and work with one another in love, not in conquest, but in just like the relationship in the Trinity. It's the Trinity, it's the relationship, it's the dance. It's serving and honoring one another, esteeming one another, esteeming one another in love. I know that many people coming from an, an, an evangelical place or a, an ultra-conservative place, when you hear the word devil or Satan, it can conjure up all kinds of thoughts or feelings. When I said to you that Brian Zand said that Satan is more than a metaphor but less than a person, my dear friend and scholar, uh, Carol Wimmer, was not satisfied with that definition, and she offers another definition, and I'd like you to try this on. I'd like you to try this on. Listen, the Satan is the lesser voice of temporal time. The Satan is a voice. It is real. Of temporality. That lives, hides, and speaks to us through our timekeeping awareness. Speaks to us through our retained memories of the past and our projected hopes and dreams for the future. If you put this definition of the Satan inside of that pericope that we just read out of Matthew 4, 
and you say the lesser voice of temporality took the subject Jesus, who represented all of humankind, and tempted the one with power, hunger, how to satisfy basic needs. And you put that there, we begin to see a different picture. I'll just read the first part of it again using that definition. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the lesser voice of temporality. You see, God is eternal. But in that definition, it does not just mean that God stands outside of time only to be sort of looking down or looking out at us who are in time. God does not, and for this reason, all of history, let me start here, while we exist within time, and experience succession, God does not. And for this reason, all of history, past, present, and future, is present to God in one single now. This means that God does not look back into the past or look forward into the future like we would. Instead, completely unlike any other creature, everything is immediately, immediately present to God. Hang, hang with me here. I work with a lot of death and a lot of life. I am with uh, folks when babies are born, and I'm with them at their deathbed, more with death recently than, than with life. And a common thread that I notice when people are at the end of life is that they regret not spending enough time with the deceased. The sudden death of one sister leaves the sister from whom she was estranged with incredible disappointment and sorrow. The elderly mother who dies leaves her children wishing they had spent more time with her. It is in such cases that God's eternal nature can in fact be a comfort. Unlike this world that is subject to time, the lesser voice of time, and often in grief over its fleeting nature, God does not fluctuate, nor does time steal any moments from him. Think about the Jesus, the Jesus character, overcoming the tempter, the voice of lesser, the lesser voice of temporality, tempting the human to be in temporal time. Charge! Charge! 
<laughs> I, I like to think that that's your son calling you or something. Okay, your husband. No, it's fine. Say hi. Say hi. Did I go too long already? Does he expect you to be out? Okay. <laughs> God does not fluctuate, nor does time steal any moments from him. Why was the Jesus character able to contend with this temporal temptation, this tempting of a temporal fix? The Jesus character coming from the eternal, knowing the Father, the text says, knowing the Father like no one else knows the Father, and the Father knows the Son like no one else knows the Son. Bob wrote that this week, I think. It is in such cases like what I'm describing of people feeling regret over losing time or missed moments or missed opportunities with people with whom, from whom you're estranged and so forth. God is never late to anything, nor does God waste time, nor does God miss opportunities. Unlike us, God is not limited to time. Rather, he is above and beyond time and thus supremely able to save and rescue us. I believe that that was what was in the heart of the Jesus character in this story. Knowing from where he came, knowing how he was connected outside of time to the eternal, never having to worry about missing a moment, Never having to worry about the things that people worry about. Where am I going to get my next meal from? And where am I going? How am I going to be clothed? And how? And on and on. He overcomes this, and later in the other in the other parts of the text, we see that the Jesus character has overcome the what? The world. What does that mean? The, he, he overcomes the temptation to be pressured by time. Overcomes the temptation to be pressured into making um, severe or knee-jerk responses based on his scarcity of time. He's allowed himself to access an eternal that allows him to give, have broader choices solutions to problems that hadn't yet been considered outside of time. <laughs> A drowning person can only be rescued by someone who is not drowning themselves. Far from limiting or making God distant, God's eternity is precisely what allows him to draw us out of our sufferings. God is not bound within our time or our limitations. God is fully present to every moment of a life, or better said, every moment is fully present to God in an eternal now, as we saw above. The past hurts, wounds, and pains of a person, as well as their future sufferings, 
are all fully present to God in one instantaneous moment. This gives me so much comfort. You hear me often say, love knows the whole story. Because we see a little sliver of how someone is behaving, how they're acting, what they're saying. The temptation to uh, make that business deal, even though it's not quite whole, it doesn't quite leave everybody 100%, but you make it for the greater good or for your own promoted, uh, your own next level promotion, perhaps. Perhaps you turn your eyes away from something you know is going wrong because you're tempted to think that there's a scarcity. You're tempted to think there's not enough, so you have to behave in ways that bring you back into time. If the Jesus didn't know the text and if the Satan didn't know the text, they couldn't have tangled in that way. It was important that they fought word for word. But I believe what really was the winner, instead of proof texting our way through a debate about who's in and who's out, I believe that what really caused the Jesus to be the winner what was that he had, like Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, and you'll have to go look this up, he had eternity set in his heart. <laughs> there is a time to, and there is a time to, and there is a time to. That whole text out of Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time to kill and a time to destroy, there's a time to die, there's a time to live, there's a time to be born, there's a time to hug. And he has made all things beautiful in its time, and he has set eternity in our hearts. If we as a people can access that eternal generosity, if we can understand that there is not a scarcity of love, if we can understand that even though we include someone else at the table, it does not mean there's less turkey for us. If we can understand that there's more than enough, that it is the divine who sets a table before us in the presence of our enemies, that our cups run over, that there's not a limited amount, that the scarcity is not ours to succumb to and thus be tempted by the temporal, the lesser voice of temporality. Think about that. The next time you have to make a moral judgment, a moral decision, a decision about what you're going to do or how you're going to get your needs met. Think about this eternity that has been so situated in your heart. You have that choice. I want to leave you with a poem from one of my favorite poets, John O'Donohue. I read this poem uh, last year about this time, and it's called Interim Time. And it's one of my favorite uh, pieces. It's really gotten me out of some uh, dark places in my life. It's a very short, it's, well, I mean, it's somewhat short. And then we'll close with this. And if someone would like to go and tell the youth and the children that we are about ready for um, communion together, you can do that. Interim time. When near the end of day, life has drained out of light, and it is too soon for the mind of night to have darkened things. No place looks like itself. Loss of outline makes everything look strangely in between. Unsure of what has been 
or what might come. In this wane light, even trees seem groundless. In a while, it will be night, but nothing here seems to believe the relief of darkness. You are in this time of the interim, where everything seems withheld. The path you took here, you took to get here, has washed out. The path forward is still concealed from you. The old is not old enough to have died away. The new is still too young to be born. You cannot lay claim to anything. In this place of dusk, your eyes are blurred. And there is no mirror. Everyone else has lost sight of your heart. And you can see nowhere to put your trust. You know you have to make your own way through. As far as you can, hold your confidence. Do not allow confusion to squander this call which is loosening your roots in false ground, that you might come free from all you have outgrown. What is being transfigured here in your mind, and it, and it is difficult and slow to become new, the more faithful you, faithfully you can endure here, the more refined your heart will become for your arrival in the new dawn. I pray for this house that we can have a new awakening in reality of eternity in our hearts that might inform our decisions as we are tempted with temporal time, as we are tempted by the tempter. May we access our eternal self and make decisions from generosity instead of from scarcity. God bless you as you hear that word and let that settle into your bones.